Well, we are glad you are here today. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, We are going to be in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 27. While you're turning there, I want to bring you back to ninth grade biology. Bring you back to ninth grade biology. Whether you know this now, at one point you did learn this about the human eye. See, this is a crazy thing, but the way the human eye works is when light comes in and hits your retina, your retina actually takes that light and flips it upside down. Your retina works as a prism to invert that image. And so your eye sends an upside down backwards image to your brain. That is the signal that it receives. But your brain is so powerful that it's able to take that upside down backwards signal and flip it back the right way in real time without there ever being any delay in your vision. That's a pretty amazing thing to think about. In fact, there was an Austrian scientist in the 1930s who thought, if the brain can do that once, I wonder if the brain can do that twice. And so he came up with a pair of glasses that he wore for about 15 straight days. And you've probably seen these type of glasses now in different board games, but essentially they're glasses with prisms in them. So when you put them on, everything is upside down. And he has a little diary where he describes what it was like the first couple minutes. He would try and reach for the most basic thing, and obviously everything being inverted, he couldn't move up or down. He didn't know what was going on. After a few days, he was starting to get a little bit comfortable, but an amazing thing happened on the 10th day. On the 10th day of nonstop wearing those, everything (whistles) turned right side up. See, his brain compensated for his vision being upside down and flipped everything around. And this experiment has been repeated over and over and over again. The brain has the ability to take something upside down and flip it right side up. As we continue to discuss Romans chapter 8 and as we look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, We are going to see the Holy Spirit is very similar to that. The Holy Spirit can take things that seem upside down, that seem at their weakest, that seem the most backwards, and the Holy Spirit is able to take these things and is able to flip them around and make this actually the best situation we can possibly have. The Holy Spirit is able to take the weakest, worst moments and flip them around and redeem them and make them the strongest moments. We're going to see three examples today, like... Normally, when we sin, that should be the moment when we're the most scared to be around our Heavenly Father. But the Holy Spirit's ministry is going to instead drive us to be with our Father. We're going to see that when we're surrounded by the most brokenness, that's when we should be full of despair. But instead, the Holy Spirit is going to give us hope. And finally, when we're at our most pitiful, at our most weakest moments, that's when the Holy Spirit helps our prayers to be the most powerful. And so let's continue as we study Romans chapter 8. Last week, Jacob took us from Romans 7 to Romans 8 and began the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we opened with that great verse in Romans 8 chapter, or Romans chapter 8, verse 1 that says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jacob took us through the ways the Spirit has set us free. The Spirit applied God's accomplishments to our lives. The Spirit freed us from sinful gratification. And the Spirit charges us to kill our old fleshly ways since we have been freed from the flesh. 
But today we're going to see that the Spirit is going to drive us to our dads. The Spirit is going to drive the child of God to their father. The Spirit is going to give us eagerness for eternity paired with patience. And finally, the Spirit today is going to help us to pray with power. And so let's look at our first point today, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, as we see our first point, that through the Spirit, the child of God is going to be driven to their dad. The child of God is going to be pushed closer to their father, not further from their father. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. For I consider that the sufferings, oh, sorry, that's 18. For all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and of children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And so Paul is going to take these three, or these four verses, he's going to break them down into three different scenarios. And in each scenario, the question is going to be asked, does this make you go closer to God, or does this make you go further from God? And depending on your answer, if you see a situation and it causes you to be driven closer to your Father, then that is good evidence of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you encounter a situation and it causes you to pull away from God, it causes you to turn the other way and run, that is not a good sign about the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life. And so let's look at these. Verse 14, for all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. This is a very simple, straightforward statement right here. When we looked at Romans chapter 7, it talked about how those who were under slavery to sin would follow after sin. But for those of us, when we see that we are led by God's Spirit, that is evidence then that we are God's children. So the very first verse we see here is based on who is leading you, based on where you are ending up, like it says in Romans 7, is a good sign of whether or not you are a son of God or a child of sin. And so the very first verse just comes out of the gate saying, if you are led by God's Spirit, then you are God's son. It's as simple as that. But... It also gets a little more complicated because we have emotions as humans and things are not always black and white. And so let's look at his next point then, verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, whether you guys realize this or not, the lost world has lots of fear about death. The lost world is terrified to die. And the reason they are terrified to die is because Ecclesiastes says eternity is written on our heart. We are the only things that sit around wondering who we are, where we came from, where we're going, what's going to happen when we die. We know there's more to this life. Romans chapter 1 says God has given us a conscience that the evidence of God is, uh, through creation is obvious, but people suppress the knowledge of God. There is a lot of fear that comes from knowing you are going to die you are going to meet the judge, and you are guilty. But Paul says it shouldn't be that way for the children of God. You didn't receive a spirit of fear when you were adopted. You received a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. Now think about this. Think about this. As a child, you are playing outside. You hit the baseball. It flies through the window, and it goes through mean old Mr. McGregor's window and breaks that window. 
your impulse is to run away from me and old Mr. McGregor because he's called me old Mr. McGregor for a reason, right? But you're at home, you're playing baseball again. It goes through your own window. Now, do you still have fear about, like, dad's going to give me a whooping and stuff? Yeah, yeah, obviously there's still that fear. But your impulse should not be to run from your father. Your impulse when you make a mistake or when you struggle or when you suffer should be to run to your father because your father loves you. Even if there's discipline that's going to come, there is a difference from running away from a problem versus running to your father when you have this problem. And look at what he says. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Like, think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, when they had sinned, what was their impulse? Their impulse was to run and hide from God. Even though they were God's children, they had a spirit of fear that caused them to run away from their heavenly father. Instead, we, as God's children, we receive the spirit of adoption, and we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, there's only three times in the New Testament where we see this phrase, Abba, Father, and uh, if you were in Sunday school, you saw one of them, Jesus' prayer in the garden. But Abba is the Aramaic word for daddy, essentially. And it's like a little child crying out in fear to their dad. And so this is this idea that we are crying out to our, our heavenly father. It's a level of intimacy that a child would cry out. I think there's a second meaning why Paul does this as well. The church in Rome is a church combined of Jews and Gentiles or Hebrews and Greeks. They speak Hebrew and they speak Greek. And so Paul's saying, with one voice we cry out, Abba, Pater, Hebrew, Greek, unity in the church, side sermon right there. But anyway, the main point that he's trying to make right here is that we cry out as God's children. We are not those who are driven by fear, but rather we are driven by adoption. So when we look at when we sin, our impulse after we sin will tell us a lot about who's leading us. If we sin and then our impulse is to cover it up, lie, hide, do whatever it takes to not be found out, that is not a good sign. If when we sin, our impulse is to run to our Heavenly Father, confess our sin, repent, and do better, that is a great sign we are led by the Spirit. And then the third point Paul makes about where the Spirit drives you, verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and of children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So we have this kind of statement here that the Spirit testifies with our spirit, okay? So at this moment when we make a mistake and we say, I'm going to run to my heavenly Father, your impulse is that God is your Father, okay? And then the Holy Spirit testifies to our impulse and says, yes, that is a correct impulse. Run to your heavenly Father, for he loves you and he wants you to run to him. And so then Paul goes off on this kind of logical change. So if, if you are a child, then that means you're an heir of God. That means you're a co-heir of Christ. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a great thing to remind yourself of, is that you have the inheritance that Jesus has. You have everything from your heavenly Father. But he says, but if you're willing to suffer the way Jesus did, that's the true test of whether or not you're a child. See, it's one thing just to think, oh, I made a mistake, I'm going to run to God, ask him to forgive me, and then I'll keep on making mistakes. That, that's not a good sign. But it's another thing, if you are willing to suffer, that is a good sign that the ministry of the Spirit is working in you. I mean, you think about what, is, what does Jesus say? He says, the slave is not greater than his master. If they hated me, they will hate you as well. 
the Holy Spirit tells us we can be confident of our position with God if we are willing to suffer for Jesus the same way Jesus suffered. And so once again, what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit takes us in a moment of hardship, in a moment of fear, when we are being persecuted, and we have two impulses when we're being persecuted. We can run away from it, or we can stand our ground and run toward our Father and stay in that persecution. And the Holy Spirit's job is to drive us to staying with our Heavenly Father rather than running from our Heavenly Father. And so we've seen these three examples of the Holy Spirit continually driving us back to our Heavenly Father. And it's one of those things where the Holy Spirit does this. He empowers us in a moment of weakness to drive to our Heavenly Father. And depending on what direction you go, whether you are always going toward God or always going away from God, is going to tell you a lot about who is running your life and the ministry of your life. Like, Carrie, I don't know if you remember if you told me this or not, or if I just saw this somewhere, but, you know, a lot of the houses I was looking at were old houses, and a way you can kind of see how a house settles is if you just drop a marble in the middle of the floor, you can tell the direction the house has settled by what way that marble rolls. You know, the marble's just going to go in a direction. The marble will never go this way one time, that way another time, I guess unless you have really serious foundation issues, but the marble's always going to go the same direction. And the same way for us, the Holy Spirit, if we are God's children, if we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is always going to be driving us back to our Heavenly Father. Did you sin? Did you make a mistake? Run to your Heavenly Father. Are you being tempted? Run to your Heavenly Father. Are you being persecuted? Run to your Heavenly Father. Be driven to your dad. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. And so if you are in here and you are a believer, there is great news. Satan cannot take you from God's hand. Satan cannot take your salvation from you. So what is the thing Satan wants to do then? Satan can't keep you from being saved, but what Satan can do is he can try and drive a wedge between you and your father. If his one goal is to seek, kill, and destroy, he can't take your soul, but what he can do is he can try and keep you from running to your dad. He can try and keep you from running to your Abba Father. And so for your application today, I want to just share with you two ways that Satan will try and put a wedge between you and running to your Heavenly Father and give you two ways to overcome that. The first thing Satan will try and do is try and condemn you. When you sin, when you make a mistake, the ministry of Satan, if you will, is to try and condemn you and convince you that you have messed up so badly don't you dare show your face in front of God again because he wants nothing to do with you. Satan comes to condemn you. And if Satan can convince you that you have messed up so bad that there remains no forgiveness for you, then you will not run to the Father. You will not seek forgiveness. Uh, once again, I gave the example of Adam and Eve, but that's such a great example. Adam and Eve were convinced they had messed up so badly they ran away from God rather than running to him. But what does it say in Romans chapter 8 verse 1? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. As Christians, we do not experience condemnation from the Holy Spirit. What do we experience? We experience conviction. The Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. The Holy Spirit will let us know we made mistakes. The Holy Spirit will talk, call us to repentance. But all that is done with a mindset to drive us to our Father so we can be reconciled to Him. So the first mistake 
or the first issue that we have to overcome today is understanding the difference between conviction versus condemnation. Satan comes to condemn you, to keep you from running to your father. The Holy Spirit comes to convict you, to drive you to your dad. The second thing that Satan wants to do is he wants us to surrender when persecution comes, whereas the Spirit helps us to suffer when persecution comes. Satan wants us to surrender when persecution comes. The Spirit wants to help us suffer when persecution comes. Listen how much of a theme this idea of a spirit of fear is in Paul's ministry. This is what he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 7 through 8. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in the sufferings for the gospel, relying on the power of God. See, when persecution comes, when when this pain comes, we can either throw in the towel and surrender like Satan wants us to do, or we can stand firm and we can suffer through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can be steadfast, leaning on God's power. And the way we do that is by remembering, ultimately, this world is not our home. This world is a very temporary place. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The way we continually run to our Father is remembering that our Father has an inheritance set aside for us in heaven that is imperishable, indestructible, and waiting for us someday. Our Heavenly Father has glory for us. He has reward for us. He has, he has like it says in Revelation 20, uh, 21, verses 4 through 6, um, there will be no more pain, sorrow, sickness, or death, for these things have gone, and behold, the new creation, the new heaven and the earth has come, and He will wipe away our tears and we will be his God, or we, he will be our God, and we will be his people. I almost really got heretical on that one. But this idea that we keep our eyes focused not on what is now, but what is in the future. And so we've seen today our first point. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to continually drive us to our dad. In every situation we ask ourselves, are we running toward God or are we running from God? Because the child of God will cry out, Abba, Father, and will run to his dad. The second point we're going to see today is that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the child of God will have an eagerness for eternity that is paired with patience. An eagerness for eternity that is paired with patience. Let's look at verses 18 through 25. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and to the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. And so Paul's first line is very similar to the verse I just read in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Paul is saying, listen, I know we are saved. I know we have this redemption. I know we have this promise, this inheritance. But obviously life is still very hard. There is still lots of brokenness. There's still lots of pain. You don't need me to explain to you that there is suffering in the world. There is futility in the world. There is uh, despondency in the world. Paul says, we understand that, but I want you to fix your eyes on God. And now Paul's going to use an example. He's going to use an argument from lesser to greater. He's going to say, Christian, are you having trouble being focused and remembering that God's going to save you? Let me give you an example of someone who does remember this as an encouragement to you, because if creation can remember that God's going to save it, surely you can remember this as well. So look at what he says in verses 19 through 22. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. So it says creation eagerly waits. Now, the literal term for this Greek phrase eagerly waits means to stand with head raised, okay? And what that means is you imagine like, like a child standing on their tiptoes, craning their neck, trying to look out. Like you can imagine like a little kid trying to look out the window to see the ice cream truck coming or see when their dad's coming home from work. This is eager anticipation, waiting to see something. So creation is waiting to see the sons of God revealed. That means that creation is standing there with its neck raised like this, waiting to see when we get redeemed. Not because we are creation's savior, far from it, but because creation knows when it sees us get redeemed, that means it's about to get redeemed as well. So creation, who is an innocent bystander in the, uh, in the conflict between man and God, creation is now struggling and suffering, not through anything it did wrong, but as a byproduct of the fall between us and God. Look at what it says in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. And so creation was minding its own business when Adam and Eve ate of the apple. Creation was minding its own business just being creation when we brought sin and death in. And creation was minding its own business when God cursed Adam and Eve and said, now the ground that you work is going to produce thorns and thistles. You are going to toil by the sweat of your brow. This ground is now cursed. Creation was just minding its own business when all that happened. And yet creation is now saying, I know that we are going to be redeemed. I know there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth because God has made a promise. The same one who brought this on me is going to be the one who frees me from it. And so creation is saying, I wait for the day when I see us redeemed because when we are redeemed, then creation says, I know I will be next. And so Paul is using this example saying, creation doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Creation is not made in the image of God, and yet creation has this confidence and this hope that God will redeem it. So then the idea is that how much more should we have this confidence and hope that God will redeem us as well? Look at what he says in verse 23. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruit. So that's what he's saying is we have this down payment. Creation doesn't have the Holy Spirit. We do have the Holy Spirit. So we, how much more, since we have the Holy Spirit, should be able to 
uh, as we groan, eagerly wait for this adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And you can see how Paul is dealing with this, this kind of back and forth where someone's saying, well, it'd be easy to believe in this if I could see it. You know, it'd be easy to believe in my redemption if I could see my redemption. And Paul says, and this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. Obviously, if you could see it, then it wouldn't be hope. But you were saved in hope because who hopes for what he has seen? Now, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. Now, I like Paul's final phrase here. As we hope, we eagerly wait with patience. Eager patience. Like, to me, that almost sounds like an oxymoron, right? Like jumbo shrimp or something like that. Eager patience, eager patience. And so as you ask yourself, okay, so I've been saved into hope. I've been saved into this hope that Jesus is going to return and redeem me, and now it's my job to hurry up and wait. Well, what does that even mean? What does that even look like? How do I hurry up and wait? I, I think maybe an Old Testament example would help us. Think about Genesis chapter 12. God says, Abram, get up. You're heading to a new country. You're heading to a new land. I'll tell you when you get there, okay? Now, if Abram just had eagerness, he would just be like, hot dog, and he would just start sprinting. He would grab no provisions. He would grab no camels. He would not pack anything. He would just start sprinting, and then after about half a day when he was wore out, he'd be like, I've made a big mistake. I did not plan for any kind of trip. I just had eagerness, and I just started running, and now I'm stuck in the middle of the wilderness, and I don't know what to do, okay? That would be just unchecked eagerness with no patience. Too much patience, on the other hand, would be Abraham being just like this little pokey puppy as he travels, you know, along the way, just setting up tent, setting up camp, just, you know, sleeping and, and never really having this drive to keep moving, but rather just being content where he is, okay? And so then we have to ask ourselves then, Abraham was willing to travel 600 miles, as far as I can Google, uh, 600 miles to get to this place. And he did it with eagerness every step of the way, but he also did it with the patience that said, I need to have provisions for this journey. I don't know how long this journey is. I need to be ready to do this journey as long as this journey takes. And he, and he, he walked that tightrope of that. And so for us as believers, I mean, we have to ask ourselves two questions. We have to ask ourselves, the first question is, do we even have hope? I mean, Paul says we were saved into this hope. Now, if we don't have hope, then we're not going to have eager patience, like, right? And so the first question we have to ask ourselves is, do we even have hope? Do we have hope that we are going to be redeemed someday? Are, is our head so down? Are we so lost in the rat race of life? Are we so in the weeds and the water wheel of despair and despondency and death and decay? That was four D words. I didn't even mean that. Um, that we don't even have hope, that we don't even realize that there's something we're going to be redeemed from. If that's our situation, man, what are we missing out on? We have been called to a glorious inheritance. We need to have hope that we're going to be redeemed someday. We need to have hope that we're going to be saved someday. And if we don't have that hope, we're never going to be looking forward to anything. So the first question we need to ask is, are we even looking forward to anything? Because if this is our best life now, like Joel Olstein says, then I'm going to quote John MacArthur, the only way this is your best life now is if you're going to hell in the next life. We don't want this to be our best life now. We want to have our head up and we want to be looking forward with eager anticipation for what Jesus has for us when he comes and he redeems us. And so we need to have hope. And so then the second question, if we have hope, 
How do we walk with eager anticipation? And I think Paul gives us a New Testament principle found in Philippians 1, verses 20 through 24. Listen to how Paul describes himself, and I think this can help us thread the needle here. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. You can see Paul going back and forth from eagerness and patience. He is eager to go home and be with the Lord. He is eager to be with Jesus, but he also has the patience that says, but if Jesus wants me to be here, if Jesus has ministry for me, if there are things I still need to do, then I want to do those things. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Christian, you can ask yourself the question, do I have eager patience? If you can say with confidence, I'm excited to be with the Lord. I'm excited to go home and meet Jesus. I mean, I know, obviously, we, we, we can't really separate out the sadness of, like, I'm going to leave behind my family. But just objectively speaking, if there is an eagerness and excitement about being with the Lord, that is a great thing for me to die as gain. But in the same vein, there should also be the patience that says, but also for me to live is Christ. While I'm here, I'm not going to sit around twiddling my thumbs. I'm going to do the ministry that God has for me. And so if we can with confidence say, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, then I think that is a good litmus test for us to answer the question, has the Holy Spirit been leading me in eager patience? as I go through this journey. And so we've seen two points so far. We've seen how through the ministry of the Spirit, God will drive us to our dad, how God will give us eagerness mixed with patience. And our third point today is going to be that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the child of God will pray with power. Let's look at our final verses, verses 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as or we do not know what to pray as we should but the spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings and he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of god and so we see this really interesting aspect here where kind of paul's allowed to pull back the veil and we're allowed to see how prayer works whether we realize it or not prayer is a very trinitarian experience and what i mean by that is we pray and then the holy spirit takes our prayer and he brings it to the father and the reason the father is receiving our prayer is because the son is interceding on our behalf because the son paid his blood to bring us into the holy of holies we are able to then have our prayers through the spirit brought to the father so in prayer the trinity is present and all three of them are working on our behalf which is a wonderful thing to think about. But listen to what it says the Holy Spirit does. In our weakness, when we are our most pitiful, when we are our most pathetic, that is when our prayers are the most powerful. 
And the reason they're the most powerful is because the Holy Spirit is interceding with these inexpressible groans. It is the Holy Spirit who is praying on our behalf when we don't know how to pray and we don't know what to pray. And the reason that prayer is effective is because God the Father knows the mind of the Spirit and the Spirit knows the mind of us. So there is no delay or latency issues or lag or anything like that. There is 100% clear and effective communication going on from our prayer to God the Father. Um, there's been uh, several times where my dad has babysat his kid or his grandkids, and Lucy uh, says a lot, but she doesn't really. She speaks her own language. If you, if you have a little kid, you know a little kid kind of speaks their own language, and you, as an, a parent, have to kind of learn how to translate it and. God help grandparents because they have no idea what the kids are saying, right? So Lucy may be saying to grandpa, I want dopped up my myself. And my grandpa will say, what was that? And she says, I want dopped up my myself. And my dad will have to be like, Wesley, Benji, what is Lucy saying? And Wesley will be like, oh, dop dop means Pop-Tart, and my myself means I want to do this by myself. And so she's saying, can I get a Pop-Tart, Grandpa? And Grandpa will be like, oh, okay. So it is Wesley and Benji's job to translate what Lucy is saying to my grandpa, or to my dad, their grandpa. And that's what we see is going on with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is taking what we're saying, and he is translating it to God the Father. So there is a clear, concise understanding of what is being said. And so we can take great comfort from this. Let me give you three things you can take from this, okay? Christian, you can take great comfort knowing that your weakest and most pitiful prayers through the Holy Spirit are the most powerful if you've been a Christian for a long time and you've suffered before, you know that there are those moments where all you can say through just snot and tears is, God, please, God, please, or God, help, God, help. Just, just these, there's these prayers where you have no words to them. And imagine if God the Father was like, I, I don't know what you're trying to say, man. You, you, you need to calm, take a deep breath, calm down, speak clearly because I can't hear you right now. Like, we can take great comfort knowing that as we are just sobbing, praying with just these incoherent words, that the Holy Spirit is able to completely take that, and he's able to completely bring the message to the Father. That is the first encouragement we have. The second encouragement we have is that we are so weak and fickle that many times we are praying for something, and it turns out that's not what we actually meant or what we need or what we even should have been asking for. Like, imagine for a second if we were misdiagnosed and we had blood cancer instead of pancre or, you know, pan pancreatic cancer. And we went to our Heavenly Father and said, God, please heal me of this blood cancer. And the Heavenly Father is like, you prayed for the wrong thing. I can't help you. I'm sorry. Like, you were misdiagnosed. I, 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 I'd help you if I could, but I can't. Like, like, if you remember the movie Aladdin, where a genie can only do what Al says, and Al's tied up in the ocean, and, and genie's like, I can't help you unless you say, genie, free me from this. Like, genie was helpless. That's not how our Heavenly Father is. The Holy Spirit, when we don't even know what we're saying, is able to take and pray to God because the Holy Spirit knows what we actually mean, what we're actually trying to say, and the Holy Spirit can take that, and he can package it up, and our most misguided, mistaken prayers can still be used in powerful ways. And then the third point we can take from this is we never need to doubt that God's answer is anything less than his will. God will never answer a prayer 
based on mistaken information that we give, based on inaccurate information, based on poor communication. Every time we pray with 100% clarity, the Holy Spirit brings exactly what we need to the Father. And so that means it is 100% the Father's will when he answers. That's what it says at the very end of verse 27. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Christian, you can take great comfort and great confidence that in your most pitiful tears and snot-filled prayers where you can't even make any noises and you don't even know what to pray for because something is so bad that the Holy Spirit knows exactly what you need, exactly what you're trying to say, and he is taking that and he is bringing it to your Heavenly Father, and he is telling the Heavenly Father exactly your request. There is never a time when God doesn't understand 100% what you are asking for. You can take great confidence in that believer that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, our most pitiful prayers are done in great power. So today we've seen through the ministry of the Holy Spirit three things. We've seen that the ministry of the Holy Spirit will drive us to our dad. That the role of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to God the Father. We've seen the ministry of the Holy Spirit gives us this pairing of eagerness and patience as we wait for this redemption. We have this hope that we've been given, and there's this eagerness and this patience that the Holy Spirit gives us as we wait for that. And then finally, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that every single one of us, no matter how bad our prayers are, no matter how incoherent our prayers are, the Holy Spirit is going to take that and use it in an amazing way. And so, Christian, I want you to ask, when you sin and when you fail, when times are hard, what do you find yourself doing? Do you find yourself running to your Heavenly Father, or do you find yourself paralyzed with fear, being scared to talk to your Heavenly Father? Satan comes to condemn us. Jesus comes to convict us. Take conviction rebuke condemnation go to your heavenly father christian when times are hard are you willing to suffer for jesus or is the temptation to surrender remember keep your eyes fixed on the things above because those are permanent not the things below because those are temporary and then finally believer do you have hope with eager patience and redemption or are you content to live your best life now all this is predicated on one verse, Romans 8, 1. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. But like Jeff said when he opened in prayer, there are those of us in this room who are not in Christ. We are under condemnation. We have a spirit of fear. The reason you are scared of death, the reason you are scared of dying, is because you know that there is more to this life. You know that there are rules that are written on your heart, and you know you have not kept those rules. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us knows that if we were measured by our actions, there would never be enough good we could do to outweigh our bad. All of us have sinned. But the good news, while we call it the gospel, it is the good news of Jesus Christ that God loved us so much he sent his one and only son who came. He lived a perfect life. Jesus was born under the law. He kept every aspect of the law. He was perfect and he died as our sacrificial lamb on the cross in our place. He took our sin and death and punishment upon himself and that way and then he died and he rose three days later and he will come back and he offers us redemption and salvation if we repent Turn away from our sins and believe, put our trust in him. If you have not done that today, there is nothing more I could tell you other than just 
do not leave without doing that. There is no imploring I could give you more serious than this is the most important thing you will ever do in your life is to make that decision to trust in Jesus. Pray with me.